Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Today we are going to continue to seek out certainty. Learning how to build betochen, develop our trust in Hashem. Now, I got to tell you, this, uh, <laughs> the Chavis Halavavis, the Rebbeinu Bachaya, doesn't leave any stones unturned. He is painstakingly creating the pathway. He's troubleshooting. Every detail is being clarified and laid out for us. The only problem is that the lion's share of the work isn't merely academic. It's implementing these ideas and ideals. We're downloading them into our operating system. But Rabbeinu Bechayr took the time to address the whole gamut on a philosophical level or a theological level. And he really answers all the questions. He gives us the clarity we need to be able to do what is appropriate, to know what's right so we can choose what's right. There's much more to say about this, but the, the truth is we've been addressing this continually and this merely is another thrust forward. As the, the whole panorama is being filled in, tile by tile, area by area. And Be'ezrat Hashem, the whole picture, eventually is going to be completed. As such, what are we up to? Well, we have established this faith perspective that tells us that each and every one of us, just by virtue of being Hashem's creatures, not by virtue of the good things we did or the bad things we avoided, but just by virtue of our existence, will be provided for. Rabbeinu Bechaya believed with absolute conviction that Almighty God provides each and every creature with sustenance. Simply stated, if He gives you life, He gives you sustenance. If God chooses to take life, Hashem Nasan Hashem Lokach, God gives, God takes. But if He's giving you life, He will give you what it takes to sustain life. Animals don't earn their keep. 
it's not a reward for something you've done that you're going to be able to keep existing. If you're expected to exist, you'll be given what it takes. So we can live with certainty. We have no reason for anxiety or worry. Well, what if I won't have? If I'm not meant to be, then I won't be. But if I'm meant to be, I will have what it takes. From this perspective, it seems reasonable to come to the conclusion that each of us should have what we need. But in fact, we have already learned that it is eminently possible, theologically speaking, for people to have more than they need. I'm not even talking about the apparent or obvious reality in which there are people who have obscene amounts of wealth and wherewithal that they don't need. Or so it would seem. Rabbeinu Bachaya himself clearly stated that a person might be given lots of extras. Not just the bare minimum, not just what he or she needs to survive, but means by which he or she can live a life of luxury, pleasure, and opulence. So then we have to answer the question. So why is that? Why is God giving people more than they need? And we cannot simply say, well, that's a reward. They did good things. That's why they're getting lots of fun, goodness, happiness, material pleasure, fulfillment of libido in this world because God's uh, taking care of repayment for anything good they did now. And then in the next world, they have a zero in the bank account. All accounts have been settled. Now, there is an element of truth to that. We have actually studied about it in this series. But it isn't kind of a black and white equation that everything a person has has necessarily been earned in the good sense and certainly not heaven forfend in the negative sense. There's destiny. There's Hashem gives. So why might Hashem give somebody great abundance? Two people. Suppose that both are utilizing the wherewithal, the powers that God has given them. Each is serving Hashem with a pure heart, marshalling their minds, engaging with others, you know, doing the Yiddishkeit gamut. One survives and one is flourishing. Materially, that is. Why? And Rabbeinu Himchaya himself stated that it is possible for a person to earn more than he or she requires. More than is necessary for what we would call basic existence. Rudimentary sustenance. So now we have to understand this theologically. Once we understand have a, an understanding, a, if you will, a philosophy kind of hammered out for us, clarity, then we have to work on internalizing it. We have to toil at making it part of our modus operandi, making that conviction the backbone of our attitude towards everything happening. But what is it? How does it make sense? Now, of course, there are those who would argue 
that theologically nobody should have more or less. And if not theologically, morally, philosophically. I once got a very unusual email from a fellow in South Africa. And I'm not going to go into more details, but I, I never met this person. Clearly he had watched some of my classes. And he, he wanted to know about the possession. Does Torah sanction possession? And I said, certainly. And he said, does Torah sanction ownership of real estate? And I said, yes. Prove it to me, he writes back. I'm like, prove it to you. The Torah is full of ideas of possession. Without possession, you can't have theft. And there's many rules in the Torah about real estate. It's not one or two verses. There are chunks of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that speak about that. And then like the rest of the exchange became very derisive and very disrespectful. And I, I, I promptly wished him a nice life and said, I'm not going to respond to you anymore. But I think what was bothering this individual is he, has the, he had these communist ideas. And he was convinced that if Judaism is to be embraced, it has to be entirely socialist uh, or more like communist. Meaning, if we talk about greater good for humanity, it must be spelled out as everybody has equally. Now, from a capitalistic system, we would say, hey, you work, you have. You don't work, you don't have. But if one wants to be honest, Torah doesn't exactly embrace a capitalistic approach. Torah doesn't teach us that all who shall work hard will make it or do well. All who shall be lazy or who shall fail, fail because of their own inertia, inactivity, or lack of willingness to toil. It's simply not true from a Torah perspective. We have learned and been given copious examples of this betochen concept, this faith idea, that what we have is a gift from Hashem, always. And yet, we are required to make the efforts. And it's part of this grand scheme of God's test. So all of life is a test. The test, simply stated, is will we remember the truth although we are living in the midst of lies? Will we at all times be mindful of our Creator or will we say, I paraphrase from Scripture in Deuteronomy. Will we say that my wherewithal, my valor, my might has made me this wealth? I did this. I made it happen. Not God. Fiddlesticks, says Rabbeinu Bechaya. That's all untrue. We have many psukim, many verses of the Torah in which God communicates with us and tells us in no uncertain terms. God says, gold is mine, silver is mine, wealth, opulence, power. It's all mine, says God. And God says he chooses to whom he gives and to whom he doesn't and he will necessarily make it look like we did it. Why would he do that? Why would he make it look like we did it if in fact it's in, all in the hands of Hashem and it's Hashem's blessing? Uh, this is the story of life. That's the test. Will you pass the test? 
Will you go through life being mindful at all times of Hashem Yisbarach, of Almighty God, or will you become arrogant, conceited, and filled with self-importance? Will you become an idolater, worshiping yourself and your own efforts and abilities? Or will you ever remain grateful for the many gifts that Hashem bestows upon you inasmuch as Hashem, Almighty God, in His Torah necessitates hard work, lots of it? This is the test. So from a Torah perspective, there, there really isn't any kind of capital guarantee. In the, like the capitalist system ensures you, well, if you work hard, you're going to make it. Says who? There may be people who are destined to toil incessantly and to deal with poverty. It's the way Hashem ordained it to be. And there may be those who don't work hard, who have no ethics, certainly no work ethics, and they get lucky, as people call, like to refer to it. They happened to stumble onto the right thing. So they deserve their money. Ah, this is where the capitalist approach and Torah diverge. Nobody deserves anything. Entitlement is a terrible way to live. We should be grateful. And this is the whole idea of Birchat HaMazon. After we eat and we're sated and we feel good, will we remember? No atheists in the foxholes, they say. When you're hungry, it's easy to remember God. The question is, as we read in Pasha's Ekev, you eat, you're sated, ah, you're feeling good. Do you still remember Hashem? Now say Hashem's name. Now bow your head in submission and express your gratitude and live with appreciation. Okay, okay, so we, we Torah Judaism doesn't embrace any ethos or any a foreign kind of theology, chas v'shalom, or philosophy on life. What is Torah? It is neither capitalism nor communism. But the question is, so why isn't the idea that everybody should have equally? Why isn't that the right thing? Isn't that the way God wants it to be? Doesn't God not want there to be classes? Doesn't God not want there to be separation, segregation amongst human beings, that no one should be held in higher or lower esteem, that all should be afforded the same level of respect and dignity that everybody should have. And those who have more, well, they should have that taken away and shared so that everybody has equally. It is an absolute certainty that Torah does not endorse that. And we'll talk about that later. That's called theft. And it's prohibited. But why, pray tell, theologically, isn't that the perfect world? These are some of the things that Rebbeinu B'chaya is going to be dealing with or addressing now. I think the biggest question that we're going to be addressing is, what about for love of money? What about people who love their money? What about people who are rich? Why are they having all this money? What's the purpose? More money than they can spend. Certainly far more money than they need. And look at some of these obscene pictures coming out of the Middle East. You have people who are drinking from cups or of gold or have gold faucets. Who, who needs that? What, does the water look any different if the faucet is aluminum or if the faucet is gold? Like, like what is that even? Why is there this kind of opulence? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And if you believe that it all comes from God, 
<laughs> then you have a real challenge. This too must somehow become rationalized or understood from a faith perspective. Says the great Rabbi Nobuchayim, we're in the Chavis Halavavas Shara Betochen. If you're following along in the new Kihat edition, only because that's the translation that many of you watching online have been using, we're on page 133. And the elucidation entitles what we're about to foray into the test of wealth. That about sums it up. The yesh, and here I will focus on the Hebrew, translating it to the best of my ability. It may not be exactly the way it's translated in the books in front of you, but I can only teach you as I know best. The yesh, and there may be amongst people, or maybe circumstances, sometimes, shemanig haboire tarpe rabim mibnei odom. Sometimes that God ordains or channels the livelihoods of many different people. And that those livelihoods should come al yidei ish echod. By virtue of one person. There will be one person who is technically responsible for providing sustenance for many. Why did that one person receive this if you will, privilege or responsibility. Why is it that God ordains that many people should have to need the largesse, the generosity, the consideration of one person? I mean, after all, if God controls everything, so why is one person earning a lot of money and having to support lots of others, why wouldn't God just take care of everybody? Make it work. He's God. Nothing is impossible. Now before we continue reading within the text of the actual Shara Betochem, I want to direct your attention to the words that were authored by the Marpe Lenefesh, one of the important commentaries from the 18th century on the Shara Betochem. I'm going to remind all of you, uh, especially those who are joining, that if you have any questions, I'm happy to try and respond to the best of my ability. Um, if you're watching on Facebook, please transfer yourself over to YouTube if you want to ask questions. And there's a, there's a, a live chat. So I do look periodically at the screen. And with Hashem's help, I will try to the best of my ability to answer questions. So let's talk about this. What's this business with the Yeshemanik Beireh? Yes, sometimes Hashem ordains it. Sometimes Hashem directs the livelihood of people through one individual. Says the Marpel and Nefesh, what Rabbeinu Bechaya means to say here is, V'chein indeed too, as well, Nimtza ba'olam, it happens in our world. Shemesim Hashem Yisbarech Odom Echot, that Hashem provides one person, Kamei Apetrupus. And Apetrupus is a Greek word that is found in the Talmudic lexicon, and it means a, a caretaker. Somebody who's responsible for somebody else, a guardian. He becomes the guardian. 
Shal Yodoi Yizoinu Kama Bnei Adam. Almighty God arranges it that one person should be the guardian of many. He should be the purveyor of wealth, livelihood, and sustenance for many different people. So what's the reason for this? The reason is, continue now inside, the Rebbeinu Bechaya says, Lahavchin. The word Lahavchin is a permutation of the Hebrew word Bechina. A Bechina is a test. It could also come from the terminology of to discern. But tests are mechanisms of discernment. If you want to know if the students actually listen to the teacher and they know the subject matter, you give them a test. And if they pass the test or did very well on the test, you know they know the material. So that's a way to discern. The difference between those who know and those who don't know, they get a test. And how might we know if somebody is really filled with spiritual courage and metal and strength? How would we know if somebody has learned his or her ABCs of spiritual devotion to God? The answer will be in the moment of a test comes. Are they still devoted? Are they still committed? And when things go south, do they weaken their steadfast resolve? Do they kind of let go? of their mores because things aren't so good. How do you know who your real friends are? The answer is, sometimes relationships are tested. We like to use the terminology tried and tested. Because when something is tried, which means you kind of push the outer limits, you see what the weak links are and how well they can hold things together. And when it's tried and tested and it survives, ah, now we know this is the real deal. That's the test. That's the mechanism of discernment. So God sends us earthbound, takes a neshama and embodies it, clothing it in a meat suit, placed in a material reality that entirely conceals the presence of the Creator, and life's a test. How will the neshama function when it's locked in a body? How will we do when we are in a world that seems to mock, denigrate, and laugh at everything we know to be true and holy? How will we do? How are you doing? That's the question. And there are times when we got to take our spiritual pulse. How are we doing? Sometimes there could be the possibility of somebody who's so preoccupied, so engrossed in his or her mission in life, they don't even take the time to test themselves or even think about themselves. Truth be told, that is the highest level of service to Hashem. As the Rebbe articulated during a remarkable Hasidic discourse he delivered in the year 1952, but that's a subject for another day. The focus here is now Lahavchen, God is testing. You know, like God testing Abraham ten times to see how well he would do. Or perhaps more aptly, to demonstrate. To demonstrate. God knows the future. He doesn't have to see. But he can demonstrate. And then, by virtue of your demonstrating, you're showing your Faith and spiritual courage, your resolve, your commitment, 
your devotion, your dedication, your love, your loyalty to Hashem Yisbarech. Aha! Here, righteousness, here, virtuousness emerges. So it's lahavchin bezeavidase. He's being tested. Who's being tested? Says the Neder Bakoidesh, Hamatrif, the provider, the purveyor of a livelihood, the one who's responsible for many others. He's being tested, not the others. What kind of test is that? What's the test? I'm glad you asked. We're going to see. We'll soon see what that test is. So let's take a look now, see what the Marple Nefesh says about it. He, he clarifies it a little more. He doesn't just say, Hu Hamatrif. He says, to test this person. And the test is, Will he behave with the wealth he's been given in accordance with the Jewish faith? In appropriate fashion? Or, what's the other possibility? He will rebel against the word of Hashem. What might make him rebel? Money. Because for love of money, people do a lot of strange things. There is perhaps nothing else in our world more dangerous than money. Perhaps nothing else more necessary. As many I want to say, money is a necessary evil. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. The necessary evil is that it can lead a person down an evil path. It can also become a marvelous way of stimulating growth and bringing about positive transformation. More mitzvahs can be done with money than anything else. You know, in the old country, many of the chassidah shayidin, People who were imbued with a spirit of nobility, higher living, they would, they would look down at material wealth. And they coined a phrase in Yiddish, Gelt is blotter. Literally translates as, it's like money is, is mud or puddles. It also has kind of like an intimation of manure. You know, like the filthy puddles sometimes in the farmyard. So Gelt is blotter. Ah, but they said, Blote is nicht Geld. But that same putrid substance isn't money. The Friedrich Rebbe wrote many times. He wrote to people, he said, that money is indeed called like fertilizer. And if you leave a big pile of fertilizer in one place, it stinks to high heavens. But if you take the fertilizer and you distribute it evenly over a wide space, it stimulates growth in an incredible way. Indeed, it fertilizes growth. So if a person has enormous amounts of money and he keeps it all for himself, he's going to be a stinking pile of money. But if a person has wealth and they use it appropriately by ensuring that it stimulates the growth of kindness and generosity, sensitivity and compassion for those who are in need, and it produces more mitzvah blossoms than anything else known to humankind. And so, 
The Marpel Nefesh says it's really very simple. God gives one person a lot more money than he or she needs. Why? Very simple. What will you do with it? Will you allow it to become the thing that leads you down the garden path to a very bad place? Or will you overcome that natural tendency to get swept up in the selfishness of lots of money and instead of the love of money, use your money for the love of Hashem? That's the big question. Will it become a vehicle of selfishness and greed? Or will it become a mechanism for selflessness, mercy, and compassion? The Neder Bar-Kodesh, pardon me, the Marpel Nefesh continues to spell it out. And he says, if you want to understand what I'm talking about, he says, do yourself a favor. Take a look for a moment in Deuteronomy 32. Just take a look at verse 15 and you'll see just what I'm talking about. So, you know, I'm just like a, just a little rabbi. If you give me advice, I like to take it, especially if it comes from a great sage of centuries bygone. So I open up Deuteronomy 32, chapter 15. I mean, uh, chapter 32, verse 15. This is Moses. He's speaking. It's like a, a poem. It's called the Poem of Testimony. Pasha Tazinu. And he is mincing no words. He's extremely critical of the Jewish people here. And he describes how a people by virtue of affluence, descend into the depths of moral deprivation and spiritual degradation. Vayishman yishurun vayivot. Literally, although this is in poetic terminology, the word vayishman, shuman, comes from fat, a symbol of Delight, excess, plenty. Yeshurun became corpulent, and then he kicked rebelliously. Shomanto, Ovisa, Kosisa. We got now three terms used. The word Shomanto comes, as we said, from Shuman, a fat that denotes delight or pleasure. Ovisa. You became thick. With regard to the word of visa, the Vilna Goen says that it refers to not only the thickness of perhaps some fat cells, indicative of a person's plenty, a person's excess, but he says even the bones become dense and thick and a person becomes filled with his own personal pleasures. So he says, Shomanta, says the Vilna Gorn in the Deres refers to the, the fatty nature of one's flesh, and Ovisa goes down to the bone itself, and of course that's all a metaphor, besides its literal meaning. Kosisa, 
Asisa comes from the term being covered. You have become overwhelmed with self-delusion. You don't have the clarity to see. What a pig you've become. Because it's like you're like a pig in, in filth, like sticking his snout in the mud trying to get a little more. And you don't even realize how hideous your behavior is. And they abandoned or forgot God altogether. They disgraced their rock of salvation. So the, the Marpe Lenefesh felt it was important for us to frame Rabbeinu Bachaya's words with this verse. Why did he think so? So here's why I think so. Let's continue to read a little bit. He says, again, going back to Rabbeinu Bahaya's words, we're now on to page 134, if you're following the Kihat edition. He says that it is lahavchin to test him. Will the wealth become something that stimulates greater fervor in Avodat Hashem? Or take us in the opposite direction? Me'am And... He said, such a test is the most difficult of trials. Most difficult. For of all trials, of all possibilities, it is these that provide the greatest temptation for a person. In other words, Making a person, one individual, the proverbial patron of others, the one responsible to provide for others. So he's got a lot. What happens is, this becomes one of the most challenging ways in which Hashem can test, in which Hashem can tempt a person. Why? So before we come back to the Marple and Nefesh's suggestion, before we come back to this, I want to share with you the words of the commentary known as Tov Halavanon. He says, and I, I'm quoting, what we mean to say here is, He said, this is actually about more than money. Because Rabbeinu B'chayah did not simply talk about having a lot of money he immediately began to talk about Hashem putting a person in the position of responsibility to provide others for sustenance. Why didn't he just talk about somebody who has lots of money? The Tevah says this is because the test is far more dangerous than just money. It's a test of power. And we know that power corrupts people. You are the one who provides for others. You give them their sustenance. You're the CEO of the company. You will decide who has a job and who doesn't. It's your decisions that will impact the lives of dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands. You know, that can get to your head. 
That's a very, shall we say, loaded position to be in. Because the power can so easily corrupt. Because he is a person who has lots of power, lots of ability. Venisa or Mispata. It's very easy for a person like that to get swept down the path of amassing riches and wealth, feeling that he or she is powerful, more important than everybody else individual. After all, you are the one who provides. You know, you start to feel a little godlike. It's all about you, your power. So let's um, let's go back to the to the verse, and it's it's really notable that the Marple and Nefesh says he he says Vayishman Yeshurun Vayivat Vayishman Yeshurun Who is Yeshurun? The Emekdavar says Yeshurun represents. Anshe Maila. He says it represents people who are most virtuous. Now, broadly speaking, there are three names that we, the Jewish people, are called. Sometimes we are referred to as Yisrael. Sometimes we are referred to as Yeshurun. And sometimes we're referred to as Yaakov. They have different names. The Torah chose to call us Yeshurun here. So why of all the names, Yaakov, Yisrael, and Yeshurun, does Moshe Rabbeinu, when he speaks about people who experience spiritual degradation, refer to us as Yeshurun? You might think it's because these are the low people. Wrong, says the Emek Dover. This is a test that can try the best. It's a difficult test. Difficult trial. Ramban Nachmanari says that the Jewish people are referred to as Yeshurun because they are Yashar. Upright. It's a righteous name. Yisrael is the children of Israel who contended. Yaakov is the children of the man who was born with the name Yaakov. Shurun is a people who are virtuous by virtue of their efforts, not birth. Or as Rabbeinu Bechaya put it, he said the word Yeshurun means far more than upright. It also comes from the terminology of having seen. For example, in Numbers 24, 
the evil prophet Bilam says, Ashurenu Veloata. I see a glorious future for the Jewish people, but I don't see it now. See it in the distant future. He says, Ashurenu. So Rabbeinu Bachaya says, this is Rabbeinu Bachaya Bar Oshad, the second living centuries later. He says, a very important Rishon also, he says that Yeshurun is by virtue of our experiences. Nachmanides says it's because of the efforts we made. Rabbeinu Bachaya says it's because of the experiences we were given. So it's not a question of nature, but rather nurture. The nurture that we toiled for on our own or the nurture that we were given experientially. The Kliyakar, who lives centuries later, has a fascinating way to fuse the two paths of Nachmanides and Rabbeinu Bechaya. He says, yes, indeed, it comes from the question of gazing and seeing, but it's precisely because of what we chose to view, how we saw Moshe Rabbeinu, how we appreciated the words that he gave us, how we viewed Matan Torah. It is virtuous by experience and choice. So we're talking about virtuous people here. And, and my dear friends, money is a dangerous thing. It can bring the highest of people low. It can take good people and it can twist them so that their spiritual features become hideous, beyond recognition. Or it can be the thing that makes a person literally glow with holiness. The choice is ours. The test is given by Hashem Himself. So why does God give some people much more than others? God puts them in a position where they have the money so that they should be able to oversee it because that's a great test. It's a great test to have that money. It's even a greater test to have that position of power, that position of importance where you become the purveyor of other people's livelihood. It's a big deal. It's a tremendous merit if you do the right thing with it. Or it can become a terrible demerit. You can become corrupt and callous. You can become indifferent or even cruel. That's a choice we need to make. That's a test we might need to pass. The weakest amongst us won't be given such a test because we're too weak. It's those who have the strength that will be given this test. Hashem doesn't give anybody a test he or she can't pass. None of us receive a challenge too great to overcome. But we will be challenged to use every ounce of strength to achieve that. And no one's tests will be easy for them. A bigger test? More koyach, more spiritual power. You know how they say, <laughs> the stakes are high, the greater the possibility of loss, the more lucrative, the more profit you can make. And as the stakes go higher, the choices that we have to make become more daunting. And at some point, the distance or difference between that which is so good and so bad can be almost a hair's breadth.
Now Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to, he's going to kind of uh, draw us a little picture. He's going to give us a depiction of this. And that gets interesting. So the question is, how far along does this picture go? Does he give us an a caricature and then say, figure it out yourself? Or does he take the caricature and then kind of minimize or bring it back to a normal perspective so that it's easy for you to understand what he means? Those are two schools of thought in how Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar makes the next point. But before we get to the details, you must know that there's a tremendous hasosa. The word hasosa means to tempt. He's really going to be tempted. Tempted to do the wrong thing. Challenged to do the right thing. In the words of Paslechem, he says, V'yosem ezechulu, Habayre yizborech meisim zehadover siba chazokol inesyoyne. God creates a powerful, very strong kind of test and temptation here. God here is giving the greatest test. For after all, if you want to know how valuable what the stakes are in anything, it's take a look at how intense is the pressure, the temptation. And because this is such a big deal, you can bet your bottom dollar the temptation is going to be enormous. What might the temptation be? Something like, and a bit, Paslechem is only using this to illustrate, to close your hand. To close your hand, to clench your fist, and not give to those who are actively needy. And he will not care. He will not care. That's the temptation that we speak of. Years ago, I read a beautiful Hasidic story. I think this was from Rabbi Moshe of Kobrin, one of the great Polish Rebbes. He experienced devastating poverty. He was literally barely keeping body and soul together. And his wife said, like, Arachmonus of the kinder, she said, it's a, have compassion on your own children. They're suffering. They're hungry. We're barely keeping body and soul. Go to your Rebbe. Demand a bracha. And so this then chassid, who eventually becomes a great Hasidic master in his own right, goes to his Rebbe and he cries his eyes. He says, Rebbe, it's, in, it's so difficult. We, we, I try so hard to make a living and Hashem is like keeping me on the shortest of strings. Why can't Hashem bless me with wealth? And the tzaddik takes out a, a sum of money. And he says, I want you to take this money and to go home and to buy yourself the finest loaf of bread and the finest cut of meat the finest fish and the finest condiments and a nice bottle of wine to top it off. Are you listening? The man said, yes. 
And he said, you have to sit down at your table and polish off every last bit and you are not allowed to give a morsel to your children. You can't share anything with your wife. That's, why? Why why would I do that? And the tzaddik said, you wanted a blessing for wealth? This is what you must do. So the man went home and he did as his Rebbe told him. He bought the fancy food and he brought, came home and everybody was so excited, there's food. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't share it with you. And they're like, what? And he sat down feeling horrible and he's eating and his children are crying. Give us a scrap of bread, please. And he feels horrible and he continues to eat and he doesn't give anything to anybody else. The worst experience in his life. He's devastated. He can't contain his tears. And he comes back to his Rebbe. He said, Rebbe, I did what you said. I did. I did it. It was so hard. It was so painful. Why? And his Rebbe said, that is the temptation of wealth. So powerful is this temptation that you could sit there and gorge on your own luxuries and see people suffer and not care in the slightest bit. Do you want this temptation? And this refined soul said, I I could never deal with such a temptation. So the Rebbe said, no. Then a, a lot of poverty shall be yours. And he gave him some money and asked him to please buy some food, nice food for his children. And he struggled the rest of his life. And he refused to accept the test and the temptation of affluence. Now I have to tell you that our Rebbe believed that Yidin suffered enough. The Rebbe wanted people to be affluent, to have whatever they might need, and to pass the tests. The Rebbe said that we have already passed the tests of Aeneas, of poverty and of deprivation, and now it's time for Am Yisrael to have the test of affluence. It's a big test. Many people have failed this test. But this is, in his love for us, this is what the Rebbe wanted for our generation. There was a famous tzaddik, a holy man, a Holocaust survivor who lived in New York City. His name was the Kapitchens Rebbe, and he believed that Jewish people should be impoverished. They'd be more spiritually focused, and be more pious and more loyal to Hashem out of poverty. And he had a son-in-law who was a chassid of the Rebbe. He was a very wealthy man. And the Rebbe pleaded with this holy man to rescind his approach. And he said, at least, at least you shouldn't, so to speak, cast an eye upon your own family. But it's a big temptation. It's a big temptation, my friends. So what was the question again? Why does Hashem do this? It's like the question of why did he create the world and put us in it if his presence isn't seen, known, or felt? It's a test. And it's having these tests and passing them that manufacture righteousness. So in our time we say, bring us the test of affluence. Give us everything we need and more so. 
So many of us are being tempted and tested in this way, Baruch Hashem. How are we doing, my friends? Are we utilizing that affluence appropriately? The personal wealth that we might have been granted, are we using it for the right reasons? That is the big question. So Rabbeinu Bechayel now illustrates for us. He says, for example, give you an example. And he uses an extreme caricature of a person who might be tempted. A person who has a tremendous test that history has demonstrated so many have failed at. What we're about to read is the condition that has done in more good people than anything else. Riches have harmed many. This position has harmed people even more than riches. We have many tragic examples amongst our own Jewish people of great individuals who miserably failed. And we will be speaking now. We'll speak about power. We'll speak about money. We'll speak about responsibility in the most extreme. Because, you know, when you want to make a point, you have to kind of caricaturize. When you caricaturize things, you make them elongated. It sometimes is humorous, but it makes it clear. So those little cartoons of political figures or whatever that you see sometimes in the mass media, the trick is simple. You find an obvious feature, whether it's large ears or... Or a, or a long nose, a strange hairline, or a shape, a, a shape of the jaw, and you exaggerate it. Everybody knows exactly who you're looking at because those are the features that are most prominent in this person, but they don't look nearly as ridiculous as the cartoon does. And it's done for entertainment purposes. But it becomes recognizable because of its enlarged focus on these unique features. And it makes it very clear. It's like, you see it in a second. So Rabbeinu Bechaya caricaturizes, and he says like this. He says, Kimelech. Let's remember that the Toiv Alavanim was very clear in telling us this is not about money, but about power. Money is power. Dervas they say in Yiddish, he who has the hundred, it's a euphemism, he has the opinion, the decision. Meya and Dea, they rhyme. So the person who has all that wealth, the person who is responsible for others, to whom others look, it can get to him. Power corrupts. And absolute power, as a famous English writer said, corrupts absolutely. Who has absolute power but a monarch? The monarch has the power of life and death in his hands. So that is the most powerful kind of position that we could possibly envision. The melech shuhumatrif cheloi va'avodav, the king who is providing for his armed forces and his civil servants. 
As the Paslechem says, Cheloi, his army is not to be understood euphemistically, but literally. Anshi Hamochama, those who prosecute his warfare. Avodov, his servants, they are Sarise Beise. They are the civil servants who work in his civil service. There's a difference. Big difference. The person who's in the armed forces risks his or her life. The person who's a civil servant isn't in a position of danger. So it's a lesser kind of devotion. The person who's on the battlefield also has an extraordinary measure of choice. The civil servant has a much smaller area of free choice. You cannot choreograph every move a soldier makes. You cannot document everything a soldier says or acts out. Can't give you a detailed report of everything he did at the end of a battle. So there's different levels of this kind of devotion or employment. Rabbeinu B'chayi in his inimitable way is going through the whole range. He he narrates this or depicts it in in minutia. All the little details as he paints the picture. The officers or the princes and those who see the king. So the Paslechem says, Sorim, officers, refer to the military brass. Sorry, Achayel. Each one is responsible for a, a battalion. He's like a little king. He's like responsible for the life and welfare of his soldiers. These are the people who get sent out on the king's behalf to lead the battles and the wars. Who is Roye HaMelech, those who see the king? They are the people who live in the capital district, the king's neighbors, if you will. You might even know them. They are the people who are involved with the king's activities. The Paslechem, who spoke a, a Ukrainian Yiddish, he says, V'nikroyim Senat. They're called the Senate. The word Senate, of course, is been around since antiquity. The Romans had a senate. Senate has been called various names. Common amongst them in English is the parliament. The czar created something called the Duma. In a parliamentary system, it's the House of Commons representing the common people, but this would refer to the House of Lords, the upper crust of society, the king's people. In the United States, it's called the House of Congress, which has Congress and Senate. Interestingly, the United States has an interesting form of governance where both the Congress and the Senate are public servants representing the people, not the monarchy, because there's no monarchy in the United States. There is an executive branch of government, and the executive branch of government is supposed to be balanced by a legislative branch of government that's comprised of the House of Senate has a Senate and the Congress. And the difference is that the Congress people represent their own districts, whereas the Senate, every state gets two. In Canada, we have a parliamentary system. We have a House of Lords and a House of Commons. So, like it is patterned after Great Britain, the House of Lords will be the people who represent the Queen. 
interestingly, in Canada, they're called senators, and they're political appointees. I think it's somewhat different than Great Britain. In the House of Commons are people who have, we don't call them district, but ridings, people who are elected by the local people. So he speaks here about a Senate or a House of Lords when he says, And then he describes uh, a House of Commons. He says, And then there is what we call the provincial branch of government. What he calls the governor. Yeah, like gubernatorial power. We call it a premier hearing in Canada. The, the, the provincial government isn't directly involved with the federal government, the different levels of government. Imagine if all of that governance was presided over by a single head of state, not in a formal manner. Actually, the king or queen is actually in control of the whole country. So the provincial governor or premier is reporting to the king. And the Senate, the people who are representing the nation in a kind of legislative body, a Senate, a Congress, a Parliament, they're in the capital. The king's responsible for all these people. All these people are being paid by the royal coffers, if you will. They all live off the government. So he's providing for all these people. He's matrif. The king is providing for everybody. Sazgonim are another form of, uh, I guess what you would call, royal officials, ministers, officials. Maybe it's different like parliamentarians and you know, commoners, house of law. House of Commons, House of Lords, Lords and Lords and Parliamentarians. Asher svivoseim kites meavdeim v'shamoshem ufgidehem. They have around them their own groups, their own staff. They have their own chief of staff. They have their own offices to run. They have servants, attendants, employees, and all of them are living off the government's nickel, so to speak. It's the, the budget. Now, in a democracy, you don't exactly feel that it's one person. One person may be making the most influential decisions, but you're not actually being controlled by that person, or at least you're not supposed to be controlled by that person. Even in the United States, where there's an executive branch of government, the executive branch of government, in Washington's view, should always be tempered and counterweighted by a legislative branch and then a judicial branch. So you'd have three entities, each vying for power. And that would create synergy or balance. In Canada, we don't have an executive branch of government. It is supposed to make things less possible for corruption. I don't know if it works, but that's... Anyway. And the point then is this. The point is that all of these people have to be provided for. And now he adds the words, Venoshim ukrevem, their spouses and their relatives. And here it gets really interesting. So, according to some of the Mepharshim, 
when it says, when it speaks about their spouses and their relatives, it's just another part of this royal narrative, this picture we painted. You can see that, for example, in the commentary of the Neder Bakredish, who says that all of these individuals are going to be provided for by the royal the sovereign, the king. He's working on their behalf. He is the public servant, so to speak. He is the public provider. He's got to go after the ways, the methods to amass all that money. He got a choice to make. Is he going to do it in a good way or in a bad way? What's the ponim toivim v'royim? According to the Neder Bar-Kodesh, who doesn't make any interruption between Nashim and Krovim, between spouses and relatives, the families of the people who are in the employment of the government, he says that there's two ways here. There's Tzad Heter, there is a way which is lawful, legal, permissible, appropriate. Dinidam Achusa, a government that comports itself according to the rule of law, maintaining that none is above the rule of law, not living with any kind of corruption or dishonesty. Oy, another option is We could have a situation where the royal coffers are filled with funds that were, well, really robbed by the power of the law, but not by the force of its spirit. So he says the king, the sovereign, makes a choice. And because he doesn't make a distinction between one or the other, it's pretty clear that the Nehdebakrit has viewed all of this as a picture. So here's the picture. The person we're speaking about is a king, a queen. So you and I will never be a king and a queen. You and I may never be responsible for anybody other than his or her own immediate circle. Okay, that's fine. It's the same concept, king in your own castle, so to speak. Who are you responsible for? So if you're responsible for an individual, you own a business, you manage a company, you're responsible for other people. Is that going to get to you? Does it make you arrogant, conceited? Does it make you think you control people and therefore behave in a corrupt fashion? Or are you always questioning yourself? Am I doing the right thing? Or behaving appropriately? Is this right or not? What Hashem wants according to the Torah law? Or not. And that's how you go through life. Not allowing the funding or the power to get to your head. Now interestingly, when we take a look at the Paslechem, who really explains the details more than anybody else. He even explains the difference. He says, what's Avdehem and Mishamshehem? Ufkidehem. We have the servants, he says. We have the attendants and the employees. What does this mean? So he says like this. He says, Shamshehem, those who are their servants are the people who are actually doing the work, so to speak, in their own areas. I guess you would call in today's day and age the office staff of the parliamentarian, of the Lord. And then there's Ufkidehem. Then there is their appointees, people they give responsibilities, jobs to do. Pardon me. Avdehem uh, are those who are involved in the work that's performed outside of the, the fancy offices. Then there's the people who are actually with this 
the parliamentarian or, or royal uh, prince. And they're, they're the idea of their attendants. And then finally we have the Pekiteim, those who are given responsibility. At any rate, he says that when it comes to Nashim and Kroivim, the Paslechim says, Kiloimar, what Abayn of really means to say here is, this is all a caricature. This is all meant to convey a message. And the message is that you have a responsibility. And the reason you're given more is to provide for those who look to you for provision. Not because you are the provider. Not because you are the sustainer. Hashem is the provider. You were given the privilege of being the one through whom that sustenance comes could be your own spouse, could be your own children, could be your own, so to speak, relatives who are the first, who are supposed to be the first to receive. Let's get to take a look here to see if there's any questions I need to respond to. Yeah, Kimberly makes many interesting comments. I don't see a specific question here, so I'm just going to acknowledge the comments. All right. So, what's the point of all this? The point of all this, my friend, is that there becomes a choice. And the choice is, will you become blinded by your responsibility and as such, behave in a way that is inappropriate. And now Rabbeinu Bechaya begins to spell out inappropriateness, folly and foolishness. The foolish person amongst them. And don't point fingers and laugh at anybody else, because we are oftentimes the greatest of fools. We don't see it in ourselves. We see it only in others. But we are the ones who sometimes do the dumbest of things. So the fool, what's the fool? So Rabbeinu Bechai says the fool can be found in a manner of three possibilities. B'shleish upon Echad mehem. One possibility, one mistake that can be made is Bekab in amassing the fortune. Ki keach what are you amassing? What are you pulling? Say it's you're collecting the taxes. Whatever it might be, you're running the country, running your own business, running or administering your own household. You are finding the money to make life go round. So you're taking the money. You can do it in ways which are megunim, in ways which are despicable, ways are which, are which are, are inappropriate or shameful. That's the Maguna. We can do it in a way which is bad. And if you would try to find another manner, another method, you'd reach your goal. You'd have your Torah and your world, so to speak. Nothing would be missing from that which Hashem decreed for you. So I want to direct your attention to the Neder Bakoidish commentary because I think he says something phenomenal here. He says like this. This person who is responsible for others 
can easily come to the conclusion that I need to do what I need to do because I'm doing a mitzvah. I'm providing for others. I'll never steal for myself, he says. I would never behave inappropriately if it's about me. I have what I need. I'll, I'll, I'll make do. I'll live on tuna fish. I'll eat matzah. He says, but what about the other people I'm responsible for? I have salaries to pay. So I have to lie or cheat a little. So I have to declare bankruptcy. I'll do what I have to do. After all, I'm responsible for others. And he convinced himself it's a mitzvah. Hasochal Hazeh, says the Nadabakadish, this fool who geisel the chaymas, he robs, he steals, he cheats. He says, I gotta provide. I got a responsibility. Says thunders at you. Aren't you behaving like a fool? He says, Why? Fool. I'm getting the job done. He says, They need to be sustained. They need parnasa. Hashem decrees. Hashem Almighty God ordains that each one receive what he or she needs to receive. Not necessarily wealth or opulence, but what they need to receive. So God decrees that. You are Eino Elo Shliach Ledvar Mitzvah. You are but an agent. You've been given, so to speak, power of attorney to represent the Creator. So for your mitzvah, you have to, so to speak, collect the funding to be able to distribute it to them. And you decided to lie and cheat to be able to do that. He says, Should you have tried to do it in a manner which was legal, which was appropriate? Hashem would give you the same way. You said, I don't know any other way. This is the only way I can see. Who asked you to make these executive decisions, to violate the Torah in order to upkeep or uphold the Torah? Hashem said He's going to provide. Yeah, of course, I believe that. And I'm His agent, so I have to go make it happen. Not by virtue of violating Hashem's word. Make it happen by doing what's right. After all, in the end, you are but an agent carrying out God's wishes. So carry out God's wishes in totality. Do what Hashem says. Follow His Torah. Do what's necessary. And surely, if they're supposed to be provided for by you, it'll happen that way. And if Hashem decrees it otherwise, then Hashem wants them to have parnasa through somebody else. In other words, the rationalization of doing the wrong thing, not for myself, for others, is inherently wrong. Lying and cheating is not the way to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. A person says, we can argue with success. I lied, I cheated, and I succeeded. To which Rabbeinu Bahaya says, you're a fool. You lied and cheated. You sold your soul to succeed. You didn't have to. The Marpel and Nefesh says, take a look at what Rabbeinu Bechaya writes much later. In several pages from now, Rabbeinu Bechaya describes a person in a desert. He's thirsty. And the thirst is making him delirious. And then he finds water. The water is brackish. It's bitter, but it's water. So the person's delighted. And he slakes his thirst on this brackish, bitter water. And he walks a little further. And he finds a beautiful spring of sweet, fresh water. And then he says, what did I do? I drank my fill of that brackish, bitter stuff. If only I would have held out just a little longer. 
I could have, I could have drunk and slaked my thirst from water that is fresh and sweet. Think about that. You're in the thick of the battle, so to speak. You're trying to make a living and to keep your company open. You have, you're tempted to lie and to cheat. Many good people have made this mistake. Remember. Remember that we were told by the Marpilla Nefesh right away that Deuteronomy 32.15 indicates that the greatest of people can fall when it comes to this situation. The best of intentions. If God didn't want me to do this, why would he make it so successful? That's the test. Great people have been overwhelmed by temptation and rationalized stealing and cheating, lying and falsifying for others, to provide for others. If the others are supposed to receive through you, then there'll be a legal, fair, appropriate, righteous way to do it. And if there isn't, then they weren't supposed to receive through you. Hashem guarantees that they will receive Parnassah. It's your privilege. So you're obtaining a spiritual privilege by violating spiritual infractions? You're fulfilling your religious obligation to provide for others by breaking other religious obligations not to cheat and steal? Doesn't add up. And as such, it's wrong. I'm not condemning and judging anybody. We've all made our fair share of mistakes, but we're speaking objectively. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Sometimes it's very hard because sometimes this fool is us. But it shouldn't be. But we should realize that just as Hashem promises that they will get what they need, if it's supposed to come through you, it'll happen that way. So what's the difference between megunim and royim, between shameful and downright bad? So the Mephoshim tell us that the idea of megunim is shameful activities. You didn't do anything uh, bad per se. It's the kind of work which is denigrating just something that's beneath your dignity. And then, then there's things which are straight up prohibited. Those are called bad. Evil or royim, says the Paslechem. Now the Paslechem points out something very interesting. He says there was, there was a great sage who lived in the second century and his name was Rav Kahana. And the Gemara Masechet Psachim on page 113, side A, records various things that were told to various sages. Hanhagot, behaviors. So the Gemara said that Rav, who was the teacher, the mentor, of an enormous cadre of outstanding sages, Rav said to Rav Kahana, he said, If you have to deal with a carcass, it's a very menial, like sanitation kind of job. 
You do what you got to do. He said it's better than using words to lie, cheat, deceive, reframe. Some people call that car salesmanship. I'm nothing against car salesmen. You know what I'm saying. You know, you use your words in a way which is demeaning and beneath your dignity. He said it's better to deal with sanitation that's beneath your dignity. He said, Pshait nivlata beshuka. Skin a dead donkey in the marketplace. Very demeaning job. Bashkil agra, and you'll take your reward. Don't say, I'm Rav Kahana, or according to some opinions, I'm a Kohen. I'm not doing that. Gavar Rabbah, I'm an important person. Sanya be Milsa, I hate this. He says, do what you got to do. So the, the Paslechem asks, uh, you're telling me a person shouldn't do things undignified. The Gemara tells Rav Kahana that he should do that. So the Paslechem says, it must be that this Gemara is talking about Hechrich Gadol, an extraordinary kind of situation, a great need. When there is no plausible way out, so to speak. You just don't see another way. And that might happen. And that's a sign from heaven that that's where you got to go. But you don't look for that to begin with. And the truth is that early on in the Psicha, Rabbeinu Bechaya told us very, very clearly that a person should know and believe that Hashem is going to provide him with things that are, you know, fitting, things that are appropriate. So it's disgraceful. It's not uh, nice, but you know, a person with betochen is going to pursue the things that are appropriate. But Rabbeinu B'chayo has another way of understanding or explaining this with all due respect to the Paslechem. He says, shameful or disgraceful, in the psicha, he says, could refer to things that diminish a person's reputation, lower a person's standing. Not because he did the wrong thing. It's just, like, how could you do something like that? So Rabbeinu Bahai in the Psicha says that a person should not have to lower his standing in order to make a living. He shouldn't have to do something that ruins his reputation. The past Lechem would then say there may be extraordinary circumstances. Sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances. And I find it very interesting that this was the advice that Rav gave Rav Kahana. It wasn't something that Rav Kahana happened, had to come to on his own. Sometimes you'd be told, you, you are the fool when you make your own decisions or think you have objectivity. Speak to a mentor. Speak to somebody else. Sometimes that's what you may have to do. Now, the point, of course, is this. When you become responsible for others, it's much easier for you to convince yourself that doing the wrong thing must be right. Because questionable things, gray areas, I got to do what I got to do. Rabbeinu Bechaya says, if you were chosen by Hashem to provide for these people, then you will necessarily acquire the wealth, the affluence, the funding that is needed. So what's the root of the error? <laughs> the root is that this person seems to believe that his efforts bring the results. But we have learned time and again that that's not true. Hashem's blessing brings the results. You just have to 
make the keli, the vessel. Because you think it's you who are doing it, you resort to shameful or even bad ways of achieving this. But that's because you're losing the clarity, the mindfulness, that ultimately Hashem is going to supply you with the methodology, the wherewithal, and the ability to do that which He expects of you. So it turns out that the person who is given this responsibility of providing for others has the same test as everybody else, only much more so. It's much easier to convince yourself that you're actually doing the right thing. And this is the way of the world. This is the way Hashem ordained things to be. And we have to embrace, so to speak, our tests. And we have to know that we'll only be given the tests that we are capable of living up to. The Neder Bar-Kodesh tells us that if you want to better appreciate what's being said here, we would be wise to take a look at Deuteronomy 15. There in the ninth verse, Moshe Rabbeinu thunders. Watch yourself, he says, lest, lest you behave in a manner that throws the yoke of heaven away in which you feel free to do as you please. The Sifri, the Medrash Halacha tells us this is the person who refuses to give somebody a loan because, you know, the Shemitah year is coming and that cancels loans and I don't want to take any risks even though this person really needs my help right now. The Mincha Belula says this could also refer to listen carefully Ha'ashir who gizber ha'melech the wealthy person is but the banker the appointee of the king he's referring to the king of all kings and the person who isn't being taken care of can go back to the king and he says you gave me a somebody to be responsible for me you put somebody in charge of writing the checks. He's not taking care of me. So it's easy to drop the ball. And it's even easier, it seems, to make the mistake of thinking that you've got to do what you've got to do, even if it isn't really appropriate. There's a beautiful mimer from the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Rebbe of the Lubavitch dynasty. The Rebbe Maharash Rabbi Shmuel says in the Sefer HaMaimarim, Tof Reish Chav Zayin, in the mimer that was delivered, on Rosh Hashanah, actually, of the year 1867. He says, you could ask the question, why did God create the poor? I mean, if God is the one who's deciding and administrating everything that's happening, so why did he create the poor? The poor has to receive from the rich. Why did God create a socialist reality? If God is in charge, make everybody equal. He shouldn't have to get a, a free handout. He shouldn't have to be the recipient of generosity and largesse. Everybody should get, so to speak, what they need from on high. In other words, a person should be able to work for what he needs and earn his keep. And yet, sometimes... It, doesn't seem to work that way. The Gemara asks this question. 
The Gemara Mishani Lefishanemer Malva Hashem Chaynen Dol. Shechaynen Dol, who Malva Hashem. That the one who provides graciously for the impoverished is actually borrowing from Hashem. In other words, says the Rebbe, Nimza, Shema Shanesen HaOshil Ha'oni, when the rich man or woman gives to the poor person, Einze Shaloi Klal, who says it's yours. Oh, because I'm so smart. Because I worked so hard. There are smarter people than you and people who worked harder than you and they don't have the money. So why did you get the money? It's not your money. Elohu gam kein shel Hashem. It belongs to God. Who provides sustenance for the needy? God provides sustenance. You have the privilege. Who malves Hashem? You're taking a loan from God. Or God's maybe taking a loan from you, you think. But you should know, Yeshalom le Hashem. God repays. Give God loans. He's trustworthy. It's not even yours. The Gamen, he goes on to Hola Arichas in his question, and he says that really there is a very deep reason that Hashem does this. In the way God created the spiritual eschatology of all worlds, there is beneficiary and recipient. All of existence behaves in a manner of cause and effect, which is essentially a benefactor and a recipient. And he describes this in spiritual terms, in the loftiest and most purest of terms, and he says, and that's why it works in that fashion in our world too. Now, you and I would always prefer to be the one giving than the one getting. So if you're fortunate enough to have more than you need, thank Hashem for choosing you to have this test. Don't fail. Understand and appreciate that we continue to believe from a Batachan perspective that yes, everything comes from Hashem Yisbarach. And why would God do that? Ah, this is the test of life. Don't be a fool. Do the right thing. And in doing the right thing, we make our world right. And nothing hastens the coming of Mashiach more than acts of tzedakah, of righteousness. Not charity. Righteousness, doing the right thing, maintaining the right attitude towards the affluence we might be blessed with by caring and sharing as much as we can. Hopefully, we'll all give the tzedakah we're mandated to. There are tragically many, many needs in our world today. And we should be zeicher, we should merit. We should have the privilege to make the right decisions and to be part of the solution. Helping people in the here and now, accelerating the glorious and wonderful tomorrow of Mashiach's arrival, Bimheira, Ubi Amenu, Amen. Thank you so much for joining. To be continued. If you haven't yet, please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Emmanuel Kaplan. Your participation is greatly appreciated. I thank you for it. Have a wonderful day.